listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. Today we're reading from Ruth chapter 4. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and uh, Matt will bring one to you. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative, Amalek. So I thought I would tell you, of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field of the, uh, from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging, to conform, confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have brought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Emelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have brought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all of the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephraim and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. So Ruth took... So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Well, good morning. It's good to gather with you this morning on this Memorial Day weekend. I know we have lots of people out of town traveling and uh, a few folks, I think, stuck in traffic with motorcycles going down 66. So glad that you made it here this morning uh, and it's good to be in our, uh, in the Word with you as we jump into Ruth chapter 4 this morning. So before we get into it and really un- un- uh, unpack it, explain it, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to bless this time. Holy God, our Father, our Lord, our Savior, we come before you this morning and we pray, God, that you would give us peace this morning, that you would give us a calm and quiet soul before you. And as you do that, by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, we come before you and we give you praise. 
We give you praise that you're a God that we can pray those kinds of things to. We give you praise for who you are, for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. And God, we give you praise and thanks that you have made a way for us to know you, to be reconciled to you. And so God, as we open up your word this morning, as we continue to walk through this story, I pray, God, that you would by the power of your Spirit, just awaken our hearts, our minds this morning. Help us to be focused. Help us to be attentive to what you want to say to us, what you want to do in us this morning. And I pray, God, that by the work of your Spirit, that you would do a work in us for our good and for your glory. So we give this time to you. We pray that it be honoring to you. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. When I was in high school, uh, I, I like to watch the show Law and Order, like the original version. It's not on TV anymore. In fact, some of my friends and I, for a period of time, would get together on Wednesday nights to actually watch the show together. But if you haven't seen it before, the show, each show is kind of divided into two parts. The first part of the show is all about the police investigating a particular crime. Then the second half of the show is about the lawyers who are prosecuting the suspect to bring about justice. There's two parts but one story. Well, today as we get into this next part of our sermon series in the story of Ruth, this very short book of the Bible that's about a particular group of people telling a specific story about this small group of people in a small town who are seeing God move in the midst of the messiness of their lives. We come to the conclusion of this story. Chapter 4 is the end of this story. And what we're going to look at over Today, and actually we're going to jump into chapter 4 again next week, finish up this sermon series, we're going to see in this section that this story is divided up into two parts like law and order. The first part is about law, but the second part isn't about order, it's about love. But it isn't law for legality's sake, it isn't love for love's sake. There's a goal in mind when it comes to these two parts within this section of the story. And the two goals are this, redemption and restoration. Redemption and restoration. And what we see in this, what we will see in this, is that the law of redemption and the love of redemption lead to restoration. The law of redemption and the love of redemption lead to restoration. Now when I say restoration, what do I mean by that? Well, at a basic level, restoration is the act of returning something to its previous condition or reversing the negative effects of something. And so we restore all kinds of things. We restore homes, we restore furniture, we restore paintings. But the biggest kind of restoration that can exist is the restoration of our world and the restoration of our lives. So let me ask you this morning, do you need restoration in your life? In some particular area of your life this morning, do you need restoration? It's okay to admit that. It's okay to acknowledge that. It's not something to be ashamed of. In fact, I'd argue that it's a mark of humility within your life to acknowledge the reality that you're a person in need. Because the reality is all of us as human beings are in need of restoration in different ways. And I can say that not because I know the detail of, details of every single person in this room, of all the details of your life. I can say that because you're a human being who exists in and experiences the brokenness of this world, who has difficulties and challenges in your life, both on the macro level looking at the brokenness of our creation or the micro level, just with the intricacies of your own life. But the gift of grace that we see on display in the story of Ruth is that God sees you. 
God sees you and He cares about the details of your life. And redeeming love wins the day. Redeeming love wins the day and restoration will come. So I hope that God will use this time and His Word this morning. I hope it will use it in your life no matter what is going on in your life right now. No matter where you're at in relation to God or faith in Him or faith in the Gospel. I hope He'll help you to see and experience and rejoice in the law of redemption and the love of redemption that ultimately leads to restoration. And so let's jump into Ruth 4 this morning and may God bless the preaching of His Word. We ended last week at the end of chapter 3 and we saw at the end of chapter 3 that Ruth is left waiting. She's left waiting to see how her life is going to unfold as she's walked through difficulty in her life. But she can have confidence in the midst of her waiting that her waiting will not be in vain. Boaz himself promised that Ruth will be redeemed, that she'll be rescued out of despair, that she'll be rescued out of a life of destitution. And it'll either be by him or by another redeemer. And so as we get into chapter 4, we see our first point. So if you're taking notes, you can write this down. The law of redemption. And this plays out in verses 1 through 12. In verse 1 of chapter 4, we see that Boaz goes out and looks for and waits on this other redeemer. And he goes to the city gate to do this. The city gate in the town was kind of the main thoroughfare. Everyone would pass in and out of this city gate on a regular basis to do life, to do business. And so Boaz knew eventually, if he waited long enough, that this other redeemer would eventually pass by. He would eventually come there, and so it says that he sat down. He sat down to wait for this man. He didn't know how long it would take. He didn't know when it would happen, but he made a commitment to Ruth. And he made a commitment to Naomi. Being a man of character, he intended to keep it. But notice what happens here. If you look at the text... He sees here, it says in the second sentence of chapter, I mean of verse 1, he says, And behold, the Redeemer from whom Boaz was waiting came. The, the author is trying to grab our attention. Again, he's saying, look, there he is. He's shown up. And again, we see God's providence here. That this man happened to come while Boaz was sitting there waiting for him to show up. And so Boaz calls out to him. He says, turn aside, friend. Sit down with me. Now, it's interesting here that the Hebrew word that we translate friend actually has more of the meaning of so-and-so. As if he's saying, hey, Mr. So-and-so, why don't you come and sit down for a minute? Now, this isn't because the author doesn't know the name of this man. It isn't because he doesn't have an identity. He's not a hypothetical person. The author doesn't give us his name because he's trying to make a point here. This person is about to fade into the background. Boaz then calls ten elders to come and sit down as well. The city gate was not only the main thoroughfare for the city, but it was also the place for official business to take place. And Boaz needed witnesses. So everyone's in place. The ten elders are gathered around. This nameless redeemer is there along with Boaz. And Boaz shares the pertinent information with him in the presence of the elders. He says to him, Naomi has come back. Now, it's likely this man already knew this. It was the talk of the town. If we go back to chapter 1, we remember the whole town of Bethlehem is stirred when Naomi and Ruth show back up. And it's likely he knows about Naomi, he knows about her story, and that he knows who Ruth is. This Moabite woman who's returned back to Bethlehem. But he says to this man something that at this point we haven't known about. He says to him, she has land to sell. It's land that belonged to her now deceased husband Elimelech. Elimelech, who's a relative of ours. 
something that hasn't been stated before, but it's important to note now. So Naomi's selling this land. Maybe it's because she can't take care of it. Maybe it's because she needs the resources from that land in order to be able to live off of as a widow. But no matter what the reason might be for Naomi to sell this land, what the situation might be, what we know from this is that a redeemer in this family has a right to buy the land, to keep that land within the family. So Boaz makes it known to him. He says, listen, there's this nice plot of land that Naomi's selling. Would you like to buy it? Would you like to redeem it? But he also makes something else very clear to him. Look at the second half of verse 4. He says, if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. So Boaz shares this with him. He says, listen, if you won't be the redeemer, I will. What he's doing in this moment is he's making public what he promised to Ruth. At the end of the day, Ruth will be redeemed. Her family will be redeemed. Now this all sounds really good to this redeemer, this nameless redeemer. He's looking at this. It's an enticing offer. He can increase his property. He can increase his wealth. He can get more for himself and his family. He can buy this land outright as a part of Elimelech's family as a redeemer, and that's it. Nothing else. And so what does he do? He says, I'll do it. Deal done. I will redeem it. I'll take the land. But then notice what Boaz does. Artfully, clearly says in the hearing of these ten witnesses, great, but you need to know something. When you purchase this land, when you redeem this land as the redeemer within Elimelech's family, you don't just get the land. There's more to it than that. You're also going to get a new wife, Ruth, the widow. And she won't just be a wife. That's not the point. That's not how this works. You're going to marry her, and any children that you have with her will perpetuate the name of her deceased husband to carry on his line. And any inheritance that they would have doesn't belong to you or any other children that you have. It belongs to these children that you will have with her. And on top of that, you'll also be taking care of Naomi. So he shrewdly backs this man back into the corner. Now he has him. He says, I'm going to do this. Well, hold on. There's more to it than that. And so what is this guy going to do? What's the Redeemer going to do? Now, the original audience in hearing this story would have been kind of sitting on the edge of their seats. Like, I, I don't know. How's this going to work out? Like, how's this going to go for this man? Is it going to be Boaz that's going to redeem Ruth, or is it going to be this other redeemer? What's going to happen? You see, the stakes are higher now in this situation. Before Ruth was introduced, this was a self-serving act. I mean, if you think about it, this man had an opportunity, a business transaction before him. Buy land, increase my wealth, increase my property, increase my riches. That's well, a self-serving act. Sure, he has to put a little bit of money forward, but at the end of the day, he's going to reap greater benefits from that. But when Ruth comes into the picture, she plays more prominent than the land at this point. And what it does in that moment is it shifts it from a self-serving, serving act to an act of selfless serving. Because now it's not just about land, it's not just about property, it's about someone's life. That he's going to take responsibility for her, her and bring her and her family into his. And this is much more in line with the nature of what a redeemer does. A redeemer, as we've defined it, is someone who's willing to take on the burden of another person at great cost to himself. Now, I think this gives some interesting commentary on the way that we can approach opportunities in our own life, the way that our world often looks at opportunities that are presented to them. Sometimes we look at options and opportunities with a what's-in-it-for-me kind of attitude. 
Even as followers of Jesus, we can be tempted to do the same thing. Opportunities to serve on a Sunday morning in a place like Sojourn Kids to say, hey, once a month or once every other month, I'm going to miss gathering with the group of people in here so that I can go serve families and serve kids down the hall and teach them about Jesus. Opportunity to serve other people in need. Opportunities to open our homes and our lives to hospitality. It takes intentionality to do that. It takes sacrifice to do that. But if we reject those opportunities because we look at them and we think that the cost is higher than the benefit that we might receive, I think we're missing the point. See, Jesus modeled the heart and nature of a Redeemer for us. That this Redeemer in the story doesn't seem to get, and sometimes if we're honest about our own lives, we don't get as well. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says this about himself. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is telling us, listen, I came here as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but I didn't come so that you guys could serve me. I came down to lay my life down for you to serve you. That's what a Redeemer does. We see in what we looked at in Philippians chapter 2 when we were walking through that, the whole embodiment of Jesus' life illustrates this. He took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself, laying down his power, laying down his authority in order to serve you and me, to reconcile us to the living God. So what if you and I looked at our own redemption, that if we're in Christ, that if we've experienced God's grace, that we've been lavished with love, that he's poured out his mercy on us. If we looked at that redemption and we said, I also now can see that redemption poured out to be a redeemer also. What if, as debtors of scandalous grace, we didn't ask what's in it for me, but how can I serve and give of my time and my abilities and my resources and do so to the glory of God and for the good of others? How can I have the heart of a redeemer? Where might God be asking to do that in your life right now? Asking you to do that in your life. That he's pressing on you, calling you not to look at opportunities and think, what's in it for me? But to say, man, how can I invest? How can I pour out for the sake of another? Well, this Redeemer, with all this information now out in the open, his true colors come out. We see in verse 6, he says he isn't willing to do it. And so he walks away. He walks away from this deal that's been presented to him, this opportunity that's been presented to him. He says he can't be a redeemer because it would jeopardize the plans he has for his life. He says, this is going to mess things up for me if I do this. If it was just the land, sure, but when you throw people into the mix, I, I don't know, I, I'm out. The cost is too high for him. And in the hearing of the ten elders, he tells Boaz, you be the redeemer. The original audience would have been excited at this point. It is going to be Boaz. He's going to get the girl in the end. In verses 7 through 10, we see the law of redemption on full display. It seems kind of strange to us, and even the author notes this, telling us this was the custom in former times. This is how transactions took place. What would happen was is that when a redemption took place or an exchange took place to confirm it, to kind of ratify it, to make it official and binding, one of the people would take off his sandal and hand it to the other person. I know that seems weird, and it is kind of weird, right? Like if I take off my shoe and hand it to you when I buy a used car from you or something like that. But that's how they did things. That's how they confirmed these transactions. 
And so that's what the nameless redeemer does with Boaz. But then listen to what Boaz says. Look at verses 9 through 10. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. It's interesting to me that nowhere else does Boaz call Ruth, Ruth the Moabite. But here, he said it twice so far. And he's also mentioned the fact of her deceased husband calling him by name. Now, this is also likely a part of legal formality. Like when you go to get a marriage license in Virginia, you have to put where you were born, the city you were born in, and your mother's maiden name on it. Not her married name, but her maiden name you have to put down on your marriage license for you. It's official, formal information needed for legal documentation. So that's likely what's going on here. He's stating the facts of the situation, the need for redemption to take place. It's part of the law of redemption. If it's going to take place, if redemption's going to be possible, all the facts must be stated and in place. But it also does something else to us and for us as readers hearing this story. It reminds us of the unfinished story that Ruth is walking in. It reminds us of the road that she's walked down, the road marked by grief, a road marked by loss, a road that has led her to the point to need to be redeemed. Boaz is publicly declaring what he's going to do in this moment. He's saying, I'm going to buy the land and I'm going to marry Ruth. The language here is interesting for us. We see bought to be my wife, and that sounds strange to us. But what he's communicating in that is, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing her into my life. I'm going to marry her. She is going to be my wife. And I'm going to do so in a formal, legal way. I'm going to do so in front of the elders. These elders who, they're not adjudicators, right? They're not trying to, to walk through a, a disagreement here. They're witnesses. They are providing and attesting to the formality and the finality of all this. They're declaring, in this moment, it's done, it's finished. And in verses 11 through 12, they pronounce a blessing over Boaz and Ruth to say just that. A blessing that's full of hope. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. It says, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephathra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. We see in here the elders use this kind of strong, historic, deep-rooted language. First, they ask the Lord to do this work. They acknowledge that He is active, that He's ever-present in the lives of His people. But then, they compare Ruth to two important women in the history of God's people. They compare Ruth to Rachel and Leah, mothers of the twelve tribes of Israel. And they ask that through Ruth that God's people will also be built up like they were through these two women. Similarly, they bless Boaz and Ruth to be built up like Perez, the leading clan in the tribe of Judah. I mean, this is significant language that the people in their hearing would have heard this and be like, man, they're saying something significant here. This isn't just some 
family that's insignificant to the story of God. This is a, a prominent family in God's story. And it's as if the elders are almost even seem to be prophesying over Boaz, prophesying over Ruth for something greater to happen in their life, greater than they can even imagine at this point. Something we'll learn more about next week in our final sermon in this series. But the elders, they encourage Boaz also to remain consistent, to remain faithful, to keep striving to be a worthy man, and that by doing so, that his name would be well known among God's people. These elders are giving a blessing for flourishing. They long to see Boaz, they long to see Ruth flourish. In light of fulfilling the law of redemption, the necessary steps taken to make redemption possible. But at the end of the day, Boaz isn't motivated to do this because of the law of redemption. He isn't motivated to pursue purchasing this land and marrying Ruth because of the law of redemption. He's motivated by the love of redemption. And we see this in Boaz and we see it in Ruth in verses 13 through 15. It says in verses 13 through 15, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. In one verse, the author summarizes some amazing realities. Boaz and Ruth get married. They consummate their marriage. Ruth gets pregnant and she gives birth to a son. And this all happened because Boaz loved Ruth. It happened because Boaz loved Ruth. He saw her in her need. He saw who she was, the woman of character that she was, and he pursued her in love. That's what motivated him to take the steps necessary to make it real. Now, I think there's something important for us to pay attention to in here, something that's significant for us in our culture today in regards to marriage, in making commitment to one another. Some argue today, I mean, what's the point of getting married? What's the point in getting married and going through all the formalities to communicate that you love each other, to communicate that you're committed to other, each other? I mean, I don't need a piece of paper to say that I love you. And yeah, that's true. But getting married isn't about spending a lot of money on a nice ceremony. Getting married is about making a commitment. Getting married is about making a covenant commitment before God and before witnesses. It's a commitment that says to the other person, I'm not going anywhere. It's a commitment that says not I do love you, but I will love you in the future when things get hard, when things are difficult. And the piece of paper that you get from the courthouse, the piece of paper that the pastor signs at the end of the ceremony is a public legal declaration of personal commitment. Sure, love is more than a piece of paper. Or in the case of this story, love is more than a sandal being exchanged between two people. But it's critical for it to be real. It's critical for it to last. But see, I think what that does is it gets to the heart of what love really is. So I think for a lot of us, and certainly in our culture, love is a feeling at times. And so why do you need formalities to confirm feelings? And I would agree, you don't need formalities to confirm feelings, but I also would say that's a wrong understanding of love. 
Love is not a construct of humanity. It isn't something that we came up with. God defines what love is. In fact, in 1 John chapter 4, it says that God is love. And as we saw a few weeks ago, God most consistently defines himself by his chesed, his loving kindness, his steadfast love towards us. We heard that this morning from Psalm 103. We see this love of God, this steadfast love that he pours out on us. And so what does that mean for us? It means that a biblical understanding of love, which is a right understanding of love, isn't about emotions at all. It isn't about feelings at all. It isn't about what you're going to receive from someone else. A biblical understanding of love, love as defined by God, is about what you are willing to give of yourself to someone else. How are you going to lay down your life for someone else? So when someone says, listen, we don't really have to get married to love one another. We don't need a piece of paper to tell us that. What they're actually communicating, as one pastor so eloquently puts it, is I don't love you enough to commit to closing off all other options. I don't love you enough to give myself fully and thoroughly to you. See, our culture, and I think unfortunately sometimes it bleeds into the church as well, has missed something significant here. We focus too much on romantic love instead of redeeming love. But redeeming love, this love of redemption is on full display in the story of Ruth. And it's not just with Boaz, but with Ruth as well. See, Boaz commits to Ruth. He commits to give himself fully to her and to her family. And he does so for the sake of the other, not just for himself. He's not just looking out for himself, thinking this will be good for me. Now, does Boaz have romantic feelings for Ruth? It seems as if he does. But that isn't the foundation of his pursuit of her. Romantic love in our lives will wax and wane. It'll come and go. But redeeming love is a staying love. A love, again, that says, I'm not going anywhere. But you know what? Boaz isn't the only one who models this for us. Ruth also models this. Not just to Boaz. And it's interesting, isn't it, that there isn't a whole lot discussed in here about how Ruth feels about him, about her, her love for him. But what we see is Ruth displays this redeeming love, this love of redemption towards Naomi. See, all of this happened because Ruth loved Naomi. And so this is important for us to think about. Because you may be sitting here this morning thinking, well, I'm not married yet. I'm not sure if I'm going to be married, so this may not apply to me. No, it does apply to you. If anything, what this communicates to us is that this kind of love, this love of redemption, this love that supersedes anything that our culture could create or come up with, Ruth shows to her mother-in-law. And it's a transformational kind of love, a transformational truth for us to grab hold of. Redeeming love doesn't stop at marriage. It can be something we all show and give to one another. Do you remember what Ruth said to Naomi back in chapter 1? Let's go back and look at it. Flip back over to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. In the midst of difficulty, in the midst of great grief and loss and tragedy, Ruth says this to Naomi, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Man, we read that at weddings sometimes, but I think we miss the point when we do that. It's not about that kind of love. It's about this love that 
that Ruth has for her mother-in-law, a love that we can show to one another, and the women of the city acknowledge that in their blessing. Do, you, do we recognize what they say to her in the blessing? Look at those verses again, verses 14 and 15. These women are trying to declare something to Naomi in this moment. They're saying, Naomi, don't miss this. God has done a redeeming work in your life. Praise his name for that. He has done a redeeming work in your life, and it has come through redeeming love. Redeeming love shown to you by Ruth. Ruth, who is better than seven sons. Seven's the perfect kind of biblical number. They're kind of making a, a, a huge statement, a hyperbolic statement here. It's better that you have Ruth than if you had had seven sons who would have given you tons of grandkids and taken care of you for the rest of your life. This is better than that, Naomi. That's what they're trying to communicate to her and what they're communicating to us as well. Redeeming love is an invaluable gift to us. What we see through Boaz, what we see through Ruth, is that the love of redemption is a sacrificial love. It's a transformative love. Where might God be calling you right now in your life to display that kind of love to people around you? This kind of redeeming, sacrificial love. A love that says, I'm willing to give of my time and my resources. I'm willing to give of myself for the sake of another. But let's not miss something else in the midst of this. In the midst of this deep truth, of this blessing that the women of the city, they pronounce over Naomi, we see that it's a blessing of restoration. We see that in verses 14 and 15 when they say, he, talking about this child that's been born, he shall be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. The blessing from these women acknowledge something to Naomi as well. God sees you. You haven't been forgotten. Naomi has experienced significant loss. She's walked through great darkness and difficulty, and God never abandoned her along the way. He never left her by herself. No, he was at work, always at work, always at work to bring about redemption, always at work to bring about restoration. And part of that's going to come through this child that has come into her life, this child who will be a restorer of her life, a nourisher of her life and soul because her family will continue. But here's the crazy thing in here. The word restore in verse 15, when it says a restore of life, is actually the same Hebrew word for turn and return that we saw in chapter 1. If we go back to chapter 1, we see that what God's doing in the midst of this, that what this storyteller is telling us is that everything comes full circle. Naomi, along with her family, had turned away from God in disobedience. They had turned away from him and walked away. Then through tragedy, Naomi turned back to God in repentance, and Ruth comes to place her faith in God in the midst of this. But here we see that through their turning, God has returned. God has restored that which was lost. It's a reversal of how this story started. Naomi came back empty, but God redeemed and restored her. He made her full again. Because that's what our redeeming and restoring God does. He brings life in places of death. He brings joy in places of grief. He brings peace in places of uncertainty. He brings love in places of loneliness. And he does so for his glory and for our good. See, this work of redemption, this work of restoration, it isn't just for Naomi. It isn't just for Ruth. It's something that we all need and it's something God has done and something God is doing. See, all of us have rebelled against God. 
All of us have had a rebellion like Naomi and her family in chapter 1. We've sought to go our own way. We've desired to be the king or queen of our own life, to be in control. When I say control, I don't mean being a responsible person. I mean when we're trying to orchestrate and take control of everything as if God is unnecessary and unneeded in our life. And I struggle with this all the time in my life. And in the name of autonomy, we reject God's kind and loving authority. And the results are disastrous. Our sin and rebellion, they bring about destruction. They bring about death. They bring about despair. We are alone in this world without hope when we do this. But God, but God has not left us to remain in that place. No, God has made a way because that's who our God is. He's a God of redemption. He's a God of restoration. Our God sent another Redeemer, one who would also be born in Bethlehem to rescue us from our rebellion, to redeem us from our captivity, to restore us to new life. But here's the cool thing. Just like the story of Ruth, the redemption and restoration that's available to us in Christ, it also requires law and love. I want you to listen to Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 26. I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation because I think it just makes the language a little bit clearer for us. Listen to what it says about Christ and what he's done for us. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just. And he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. See, our sin deserves eternal death and separation from God, but through Jesus, the righteous wrath of God is satisfied. Through faith in Jesus, we are declared legally right before God. It's the law of redemption on display. That now, if you place your faith in Christ, when God looks at you, he doesn't see the fact that you've disobeyed and rebelled against him. He sees the fullness of the righteousness of Christ, the perfect life that Jesus lived in your place, the one that you couldn't live. He declares you legally justified, legally righteous before him. But listen, just like Boaz, Jesus didn't do this just for the sake of fulfilling the law of redemption. He did it. He was motivated by the love of redemption. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10, it says this, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins. Listen, Jesus went to the cross to take the place for your punishment, dying for you. He bore the wrath of God for your rebellion. He displayed redeeming love because he willingly went to the cross and he stayed there so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be set free. And just like the story of Ruth, through tragedy comes triumph. Jesus died on the cross, but he didn't remain dead. 
He rose again in victory, reversing the effects that sin had brought about. See, when we look to the cross of Christ, we can't forget the empty tomb. His resurrection is a promise to us that He has not only accomplished redemption, but He will bring full restoration to our world and our lives. When He declared it is finished, He meant it. But I know the reality is right now in our own lives, we find ourselves in this place of waiting, this place of the now and the not yet. We know redemption has been accomplished on the cross, yet we exist in this place of waiting for the, full, for the fullness of restoration to be complete. But again, the story of Ruth is instructive for us. Ruth had to wait for restoration to happen. Naomi had to wait for restoration to happen. The pages of Scripture are full of waiting. Why? Why are we called over and over again to wait and wait and wait for the Lord to move, to act? It's not because God is uninterested. It's not because God is unable. It's because God is at work. God is at work in ways that we don't fully see and in ways sometimes that we don't fully understand. God is at work because he longs for people to come to himself. What we consider a long time is a display of God's patience. So we long for more people to come to be redeemed and be restored. But I know that in the midst of our waiting, in the midst of our longing for the fullness of that restoration to come, that we can be tempted. We can be tempted to believe the lie of the enemy that God is holding back good from us. And the subtlety of the whispering serpent lingers, seeking to distort the character of God. And so we can start to ask ourselves or think, is he really good? Does he really want to do good to me? I struggle with this at different points in my life, whether it's through difficult seasons or disappointments in my own life or in ministry. But friends, I want us to see something in this. We can look to Ruth we can look to the cross of Christ in the empty tomb and say, yes, he is good. And yes, he has done good and is doing good to me. See, we need to understand something. Biblical restoration isn't something where he, God is bringing back or reversing things to bring us back to the previous condition. He's bringing us to a better one. If we look at the whole story of Scripture, we see that the story of God started in a garden with two people, but it ends in a city with myriads of people. People from every tribe, every language, every people group. What the story of Ruth does is it reminds us, as the story of the whole Bible does, that while we don't always know how or when God will do this restoring work, we can know that He will. We can have confidence in that. One day, our resurrected Redeemer will come again and He will make everything sad untrue. He will remake everything that's been spoiled. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes and He will finally put death to death. And the only way that you can experience that redemption, the only way that you can experience that restoration is by placing your faith in Jesus, who He is and what He's done. And so if you don't yet know Christ, if you haven't yet turned in repentance and faith towards Christ, placing your hope in Him and Him alone, I implore you, I plead with you to do that today. There's no better time to do that. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. Just this past week, a pastor within the network, one of the networks that our churches is in, was killed in a car accident, 50 years old. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, but we can know who is in control. We can know our Restorer and our Redeemer lives. Place your faith in Jesus today if you haven't done that. 
And if you already have placed your faith in Christ, if you've already trusted in who He is and what He's done for you, this is your reality. This is your hope. This is what's true for you. That restoration will come. And I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded of that when I'm struggling with seeing brokenness around me, when I'm struggling with seeing something like that happen, when someone passes away in that way, when I'm just dealing with things in my own life where I feel disappointed and discouraged. I need to be reminded that restoration will come, that this isn't all that there is. I hope you can be reminded of that as well. Listen, right now, life often feels chaotic, but our redeeming God brings order to the chaos not because he necessarily eliminates all of it here and now, but because he's present with us in the midst of it. Find hope in that. We see that he was with Ruth. We see that he was with Naomi. Friends, he's with you also. So let me ask you as we close, are you attentive to the story of redemption that God is weaving in your life? Are you being attentive to the story of restoration that God is weaving in your life right now? Where Do you think, where do you see that God wants to do a redeeming and restoring work within you? Pray, ask for clarity on that. Ask people around you to help you with that. Let's be a church that places our hope and our trust in a God of redeeming love. Friends, don't be distracted. Don't be discouraged by the lies of the enemy. Listen to the voice of your Savior who says to you, I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. I will make all things new. As we come forward to take communion together, we come to be reminded and refreshed in the law of redemption and the love of redemption that leads to restoration given to us in and through Christ. Our Redeemer laid down His life in order to save us and give us new life now and forever. And so as you eat the bread this morning, a picture of Jesus' body broken for you, as you drink the cup this morning, a picture of Christ's blood shed for you. Be encouraged, be refreshed in all that Christ has done, is doing, and will do for your good and His glory. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'm grateful that God's brought you to be here this morning. We would just ask that you not come forward to, to partake of this meal. We want you to take Christ. We want you to experience that redeeming love and grace this morning. And so if that's where you're at right now, I just encourage you to hang out in your seat. Ask God to reveal himself to you. If you're ready to start that relationship with Jesus, tell God that this morning. Let somebody around you know that so that we can journey with you in what it looks like to know Christ and follow Christ. For those of you that will come forward, we just have our two tables at the front this morning. So just come forward to the front. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. God, we come, with this, come before you this morning and we ask that you would do a big thing, but not something that's too big for you. God, we pray that you'd bring redemption. God, we pray that you'd bring restoration. God, I ask that you would save people today. God, I ask that you would awaken us if we're stumbling through life now, struggling to have faith. Would you bring about restoration and new life to us? Encourage the faint-hearted this morning. Lift up our eyes to see you, to trust you, to follow you. God, I pray that you'd help each and every one of us to trust you even when the path you have us on leads us through valleys of darkness and discouragement. God, I pray that you'd help us to trust you when we aren't exactly sure what you're up to. God, I pray that you'd help us to focus on the good news of Jesus who has come and will come again. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your lavish love. We thank you for our Savior 
And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace. Thank you.